to Season 2, Episode 2 of Viking Story. My name is Alan Laycock-Fuchs, and you are listening to a podcast that is dedicated to a novel that I've written, which is set in the Viking Age, and I also explore Viking themes that are related to my novel and that are of the interest to my listeners. Today's episode is going to look at the mystery surrounding the Vinland map. And as I said in the last episode as well, if you haven't gone back and listened to Season 1, Episode 4 yet, I definitely encourage you to do so, because it is a good preparation for this episode. And actually, in many ways, I believe that episode is going to be like a precursor to this episode, or this episode is going to be a sequel to that one. So I'm going to relate a lot of material back to that one. Even if you have listened to that episode previously, it would probably be a good idea just to sort of refresh your memory, just listen to it again. So that's Season 1, Episode 4. It'll just give you a good grounding in what Vinland is and just all of the background information necessary uh, as we explore this topic today. If you have access to a computer with you right now or your phone or whatever, I would also encourage you to just Google image Vinland map just so that you can see what it looks like yourself. I will do my best to describe it, but having a visual aid doesn't hurt. So assuming you've you've now heard Season 1, Episode 4, or you're prepared to go ahead with this episode, then let's just get right into it. Uh, I want to start by just talking quickly about what is the Vinland map, actually. So the Vinland map is a 15th century map that shows the entire world. So it's sort of like a, a world map, and it is the first known map to depict North America. So it's a map created by the Vikings and it shows what they describe as Vinland in the far, far west. So as far as anyone knows, this is the first map to depict North America. And of course, this map predates Christopher Columbus's voyage to the, to the New World as well. So in terms of historical importance, this is a highly uh, significant map. The map sort of comes into the, the public consciousness in 1957. And just to remind you guys, 1957 predates the archaeological findings at Lanzo Meadows. So in 1957, there is renewed interest in the Vinland sagas, the Vinland voyages, as I talked about in Season 1, Episode 4. But uh, at this point, there's no concrete proof that the Norse Vikings ever visited North America. So this map is a huge indicator that, that they actually did. It's a huge piece of evidence. And in 1957, this map, along with a document called Historia Tatarium, which is often translated into English as the Tartar Relation, which itself is a, a, a medieval manuscript. It dates to the 13th century, and it uh, documents basically the Mongols and the Mongol uh, civilization. Uh, missionaries were sent there to interact with them and to document them. So in 1957, a man by the name of Irving Davis uh, presents the Tartar relation and the Vinland map together to the British Museum and offers to sell it to them. Irving Davis is working on behalf of a, an Italian named Enzo Ferrioli, and the British Museum see a number of red flags, or at least a couple of red flags, with, with this document. So in particular, with the Vinland map, Irving Davis can give no background on the provenance of this map. So where did it come from? How did he get a hold of it? What's its background story? He could say nothing on the matter. He just found it. You know, like, like what? Like, did you just find it under your sofa? Or, or how did you come across this? So, so that's a bit of a red flag. Also, Enzo Ferrioli's past, even at this time, is a little bit sketchy. 
So that's a red flag. Also, one of the scholars at the British Museum notices that some of the handwriting on the map uses a handwriting style that wasn't fashioned until the 19th century. So this is another bit of a red flag. Also, the map itself, if you've Google imaged it, if you've seen it, um, it's it's not very colorful. And normally, medieval maps that depict the world were very elaborate, colorful. They were designed to be displayed. They were they were meant to be very beautiful. And the Vinland map is not that. It's really just black outlines of all the continents and and the world. So it's not it's not very elaborately decorated. So this is another bit of a red flag. None of this suggests that the Vinland map is unauthentic, but it's enough red flags that the British Museum declines on purchasing the map. So at this point, Irvin Davis and Enzo Ferrioli change their tactics and they find an American dealer named Lawrence Witten and he's a collector of medieval manuscripts. He's someone interested in this kind of material. And they convince him that even though the, the Vinland map at this point hasn't been authenticated, uh, they convince him to purchase it for $3,500, which back then was a year's salary. So this is no small purchase on behalf of uh, Witten. And Witten knows that, that this map is unauthenticated, but if he can authenticate it, He'll stand to make millions from this because of its historical importance as the first map to depict North America. So he takes the map home. He studies it. There are a number of wormholes in the map. He's also purchased, of course, the Tartar Relation, which the two come together. And there are wormholes in these medieval documents. And a lot of you might think that wormholes aren't a real thing, that bookworms, it's just a term we use to describe people who like to read or, or whatever, but actually bookworms do exist. And especially with really old material like this, centuries old, worms can eat their way through the books and leave, obviously, wormholes. And this is one way to authenticate medieval manuscripts, for example, by, by uh, looking at these wormholes. And the Tartar relation and the Vinland map Together, both have wormholes, but the problem that Lawrence Witten finds is that the wormholes don't match up. So the wormholes definitely do sort of hint at, you know, this being an older document, but the Tartar relation actually is an authenticated document. It's from the 13th century. So there's no doubt about that. But what Witten needs to do is to connect the Vinland map to the Tartar relation. Apparently they were bound together at one point, but the wormholes don't match up. So this kind of leaves him at a dead end. Um, however, a year later, so in about 1958, a friend of Witten's, who's also a Yale alumnus, he acquires a medieval manuscript called Speculum Historiale, which is often translated into English as Historical Mirror, and he acquires this from Irving Davis. So this document he, he lends to his friend Witten, and Witten looks at the wormholes in this document, and he kind of recognizes sort of the, I don't know, the dimensions of the wormholes. I mean, he's he's studied the wormholes with the Vinland map and, and the Tartar relations at this point quite extensively. And he kind of recognizes that the the vellum, the, the pages of this new document, are roughly the same size as the Vinland map and the Tartar relation. So he gets an idea in his head, and he puts them together. And what he finds is that if he places the Vinland map on top of the historical mirror, 
which, by the way, is a, another authenticated 13th century historical encyclopedia. So he places the map on top of the historical mirror and then the historical mirror on top of the Tartar relation. And when you stack them in this way, the wormholes lined up. So what we determined from this is that at one point in history, and for a long period of time in history, the Vinland map, the historical mirror, and the Tartar relation were all bound together, and this then authenticates the Vinland map. What happens next is that Witten sells the, the map to his friend, Paul Mellon, for $300,000, and Mellon donates it to Yale University. But he has a condition. He wants the university to keep the book or keep the, the map secret until a scholarly book can be written about it. And this takes a number of years, obviously, but yeah, the Vinland map at this point is kept in complete secrecy. Only a few people who were already aware of the Vinland map at this point are allowed to sort of study it. So there's not a lot of collaboration with other scholars. There's no real interdisciplinary work done on the, on the map. Um, but the people who are allowed to sort of examine it, the very few, do write a book on it. And they then present the Vinland map to the public, along with this accompanying book called The Vinland Map and the Tartar Relation. And they present this basically on Columbus Day, 1965, which is a very provocative date because Columbus Day obviously celebrates the voyages of Christopher Columbus, who, as everyone in America at that point had learned, up until this time, uh, Columbus was the first person to discover North America, to discover America. Although how you discover a place that's already inhabited is a little bit of a question mark for me, but um, at least he was the first European to discover America, you could say. And for a lot of Americans, there's a lot of pride in this, and especially Italian-Americans really looked at Christopher Columbus as sort of one of their own and sort of a hero in American culture and American legacy. And uh, when, when what this Vinland map represents is that actually the Norse Vikings were the first to discover North America. So it puts everything that, that Christopher Columbus um, did sort of into question. Although, on the other hand, if you do something and later on you find out that someone else did it before you, it doesn't really change that you also did it. Christopher Columbus, as far as I'm aware, uh, the Vinland voyages played no influence, had no part in his uh, undertaking of the voyages that he undertook to America. Um, he actually thought that he would end up in India, which is why he, he called the Native Americans there Indians. But yeah, he seemed to have accomplished this feat completely independent of the, the Norse voyages. But nevertheless, a lot of people were, were sort of hurt and a, a bit of pride was hurt when, when it was discovered that actually the Vikings um, had, had achieved this in advance of Christopher Columbus. And this is sort of generally the way things work. It's, it's human nature as well that when a new scientific discovery is made, and this happens even in, in the academic world as well, it takes a while for people to sort of come around to the idea because it can be jarring and, and rightfully so questions need to be asked. And, and um, there's usually a bit of, bit of time until uh, new evidence is generally and widely accepted. It would almost be as jarring, I guess, as if, um, I mean, everyone listening is probably familiar with Neil Armstrong or if you're not, you're, you've probably at least heard the name. He was the first person to walk on the moon. We've all kind of learned that in school and, and heard the stories, whatever. Imagine if it came to light that actually the Vikings were the first people to walk on the moon and that they actually achieved this 500 years before Neil Armstrong. 
you would think, wait, what? Like that can't be possible. You know, how would they even have the technology to do that at that time? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, why the Vikings? So yeah, it would be jarring. I can understand that. And, and as I said, it was very provocative to announce this on Columbus Day. So obviously it, it creates a bit of a divide between Christopher Columbus and the Norse Vikings. But as I mentioned in episode four last season, very shortly after this, the archaeological, the archaeological evidence is uncovered at Lanzo Meadows that indeed proved that the Norse Vikings were the first Europeans to discover North America. So this this Vinland map is, is tied into everything related to the reemergence of interest in the Vinland voyages. And as soon as this is this is revealed and the book is published uh, to the wider public, of course, scholars jump start jumping right on it. And the authenticity of the Vinland map is immediately called into question. There are a number of things that stand out to, to various scholars. Um, the first thing that, that is sort of clear is that Greenland is depicted on the Vinland map almost entirely accurately. The shape of it, uh, Greenland is, is depicted accurately. It's even accurately depicted as an island, even though Greenland was not circumnavigated until the 20th century. So how would somebody in the 15th century know that Greenland was an island and know that it was, you know, the shape that it is. Maybe they just did a wild, educated guess and were 100% accurate, but it is um, very questionable. So that was a red flag that immediately came up. Another one was that if the Norse Vikings created this map, why did they depict their own homelands, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, why are they drawn so poorly? If they have such a good grasp of the entire world... How come they don't know what their own home looks like? So that was another uh, red flag. A huge argument for the Vinland map being a forgery was also the fact that the Norse Vikings didn't create maps. Um, they were not known to use maps. at this uh, Up until the 14th century, there are no maps from, from the Vikings. The Vikings traveled using their knowledge of, of the weather, of the landscapes, of landmarks, different ways that the water flows. There are all sorts of clues and indications of, of where you're going. Even the sagas themselves tell stories of how to get to different places, what to expect when you get there, and so on. So the Vikings had a lot of knowledge, and when they traveled, they certainly looked for these indicators, but they weren't known to draw maps. And actually, in my novel, I do have a character draw a map, which I was hesitant to, to put in, actually, but for the, the sake of the story I did. It is not a Norse character that draws the map, although a Norse character does acknowledge that this is a depiction of some land. But yeah, the Vikings weren't known to, to create maps. And it actually reminds me of a, a story from the Native Americans who interacted with the Europeans in, in the 16th, 17th century. So after Jacques Cartier's explorations... Uh, the fur trade kind of started up almost immediately. And there were a number of interactions between Europeans and Native Americans. And a lot of the Europeans would ask the Native Americans, how do you get to this place? How do you get that? Could you draw me a map? But if you don't have maps as a part of your culture, how do you draw a map? And there was one story that's always stuck in my mind of one of the natives tried to draw a picture, either in the sand or, or something with a stick. And he drew a straight line, then he drew a circle, then he continued the straight line, drew another circle, same size, drew another straight line, and then drew another circle. And he, this was basically his way of saying that you go, you walk, you come to this lake, 
then you'll come to this lake and then you'll get to your final destination. But obviously you don't walk in a completely straight linear line and the lakes are not all completely circular or not all the exact same size and shape, but this was his best attempt at putting his thoughts into some sort of picture. Uh, but yeah, maps were not known to be used by the Vikings, so why does this one exist is a huge question mark. Also, the writing on the map seems to have been separated onto two pages. So the Vinland map, it consists of two pieces of, of parchment, and uh, the idea was that it was opened and closed and folded so many times that the crease down the middle eventually tore and it became two separate pieces of paper. However, there's no writing on the map that seems to cross the divide. So it seems like whoever created this map already had the two pieces of, of parchment uh, side by side and just created the map without overlapping, which if you were actually to create a map, a world map at that time, first of all, you would want to decorate it and make it as colorful as possible, as I said before. But secondly, you would rather put the map on a big piece of paper rather than on two smaller pieces of paper. So a lot of this didn't make sense and, and required further investigation. So after this, a number of scientific examinations were conducted on the Vinland map, and one of these examinations was a radiocarbon dating of the parchment itself. And interestingly enough, the parchment was determined to be from the 15th century. So the, the material that the Vinland map was created on was legit. It matched up with the time period perfectly. Uh, another examination was then conducted on the ink, and after an analysis of the ink, it was determined that anatase was found in the ink in its synthetic form, which meant that the, the ink used to create the map could not predate the 1920s. So this right there kind of put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, that this was a modern-day forgery and not actually a document from the Middle Ages. Yale, for its part, has always been kind of coy on the subject. Um, they've displayed the Vinland map at their university, and they've always said, they haven't outright said that it was a, a forgery, but pretty much from the very beginning, its authenticity was always in question, and I think Yale even privately knew that it was most likely a, a forgery. But they've always said that it's a an interesting historical document. It's an interesting artifact that has created a lot of debate. You know, they've kind of presented it that way. But actually, just earlier this year, so on September 1st, 2021, Yale have, probably regrettably, admitted that the Vinland map is a fake. So based on all evidence to date, there's really no argument against that. Um, but now, investigations have turned towards the provenance of the Vinland map. So where did it come from? Who made it? Why? These are the questions that, that are now arising. And there's a Scottish researcher named John Paul Floyd, and he has found that the Speculum Historiale and the Historia Tartarum, so the um, historical mirror and the Tartar relation, were loaned to an event in Madrid, Spain in 1892 to commemorate the voyages of Christopher Columbus. So we can kind of date these documents at least to, you know, sort of the 1890s in Spain. And we know that Ferrioli uh, stole some documents from a Spanish library in the 1950s. 
And basically, he was a very sort of charismatic individual. He could charm people quite quite well. And apparently, he used his charms to sort of you know, charm the librarians uh, at this library, and they allowed him to sort of walk freely amongst the medieval manuscripts. And he would rent some out. He would you know, return them. So this was all part of his, his cover, of course, but some of them he would sneak away, perhaps in a briefcase or a newspaper, and he would not return those ones. And the genius of his theft was actually that he would uh, destroy the index card that was related to this medieval document. So when people would look for these documents, they weren't at the library because, you know, they never were. There's no record of them in the index. But uh, the whistleblower that kind of uh, started the ball rolling in the investigations of Ferrioli uh, was somebody who had previously rented the Tartar relations from this library. So he knew that it was there. And the fact that it now no longer existed, either in the index or on any of the shelves, led to the investigation that led to Ferrioli being jailed for theft. So it seems like he probably stole these documents from the library, as I said, in the 1950s. The fact that the Vinland map was you know, created after 1920 on real parchment from the Middle Ages can be explained basically because in, in, in the Middle Ages, these manuscripts often had a number of blank pages at the beginning and a number of blank pages at the end. So it's a little different than what we think of books nowadays. You wouldn't really have a, a number of blank pages to start a book. I certainly don't in my novel, um, although maybe I should. Uh, but yeah, it was common back then that sort of there were a few sort of buffer pages at the, the front and back. So what seems to have happened is that somebody, I'm guessing in the 1950s, got a hold of of one of these documents, probably the, um, uh, the historical mirror, and took a few pages from the front of that. So this is legit vellum. And then drew the map on these pieces of paper, on this parchment, and then you know, put it together with the Tartar relation to try to authenticate it. A good way to authenticate something is to combine it, bind it with something that is authenticated. So it'll give more credence to, to this as well, this document. So this was, I think, the idea behind the forgery of the Vinland map. But who exactly did it? At this point, we don't really know. It would have had to have been someone with quite a good knowledge of, yeah, ancient materials, of medieval world maps, of the Vinland voyages as well. Ferrioli himself was a bit of an expert in, yeah, dealing with, with medieval manuscripts and buying, well, mostly selling them, um, the ones that he stole. So I don't know if, if Ferrioli himself created the Vinland map. I, I don't know enough about his background, actually, but it would have, have to have been some kind of scholar, I would think. Possibly someone born in the early 1900s, so that by the time, you know, 1950 came around, they were well-educated and well-versed in the subject matter. What we do know about the creator of the Vinland map is that they used the Bianco world map, which is an authenticated 15th century world map, as their template, because there are a number of mistakes in the Bianco world map that are replicated in the Vinland map, but they're not replicated anywhere else. So it seems that whoever did create the Vinland map sort of used the Bianco world map as an inspiration, but um, yeah, beyond that, we don't know much. The Bianco world map at the moment is... Um, based in Italy. So I don't know, just my own feeling is we're looking for somebody in either Spain or Italy from that time period with that sort of a background. But uh, if you're interested in, in learning a little bit more information, I would recommend checking out 
uh, a scholar by the name of Kirsten Seaver. She's sort of the authority on the Vinland map, and she's written a lot of works on it. So for further study, I would recommend seeking her out. But yeah, I think that's where I'm going to leave things for today. And in the next episode, I'm going to look at the next Viking mystery. And I'm actually going to look at the mystery of Sutzhetler, which is a major archaeological discovery that was actually only brought to light earlier this year, so earlier in 2021. So definitely in academic terms, terms we're looking at something very recent, very contemporary. So this is a an archaeological discovery that was found in a cave that have religious implications, and I'm going to go into more detail in that in the next episode. But as always, if you are a fan, if you are a publisher, if you're an agent, if you'd just like to get in touch, uh, please reach out to me. You can send me an email at vikingstoryfaq at outlook.com. That's vikingstoryfaq. As always, I'd love to hear from you. I'm always happy to answer any questions you might have. And until then, until next episode, Q Thor's Thunder. 